Alright, so symbolic exchange and death. So we'll have to jump right into this one because it's uh, it's a beast. It's a long one. Uh, but before we do, uh, there's, there's something to be said about its publication. So it was released in 1976, however, it was only translated into English in the mid-90s, like I think 94. So that was, it, it had an effect on Baudrillard's reception in the English-speaking world because you know, coming out before this in English, you know, simulacrum simulation, and many of his other texts that, uh, on their own, you know, can be made sense of, but don't really get at, or or, or are missing some very key ideas, um, prevalent throughout Baudrillard's work. So Baudrillard starts out this book in his preface preface by su- suggesting that symbolic exchange is no longer the organizing principle of modern society. So right off the bat, you know, he wants us to start thinking about symbolic exchange as being that thing that stands before, you know, modern society, whatever that might look like, as being that thing that will ultimately be a challenge to the tenets of modern society. So thinkers that are important to him in this respect are Sassoul, and mouse and we'll get into them specifically like we've already spoken about mouse in for critique of the political economy of the sign but Saussure a little less and we'll get more into Saussure later in this text but for Baudrillard these two thinkers open up the domain for uh, a critical analysis that considers you know forms of exchange economic or otherwise that diverge from you know the modern forms capitalist uh, and whatnot. So with that, Baudrillard says that they they present um, analyses that are more radical than that of either Marx or uh, Freud. However, with this, we must be careful not to just place Mauss or Saussure on like a pedestal, right? You know, Saussure was already done away with with Derrida. you know, but Baudrillard still wants to read something in him here. But what he says is that we must, as he has already done with Marx and a little bit with Freud, which he'll do more with Freud in this text, is turn Marx against Marx, turn Freud against Freud, and ultimately Mauss and Saussure against themselves as well. So what is going on here is that we are entering the domain of reversibility. Now, reversibility is a key term in Baudrillardian thought. Uh, and it's one that stays with him after this point. It came up at previous in, in brief instances in his previous text, but reversibility is really a guiding theme throughout uh, Baudrillard's work. And reversibility for Baudrillard actually corresponds to the idea of the countergift, you know, in Potlatch or Kula, uh, things that he kind of spoke about in for a critique of the political economy of the sign precisely because it turns things back on themselves, if you will, where, you know, you give a gift, uh, the gift that must be returned with an, an even greater gift, and so on and so forth. But reversibility corresponds to that same logic in that it undermines, I guess, in a sense, the privilege of the initial gift, if you will. I notice I say, if you will, a lot, and I'm sorry for people that are sick of hearing it, but... 
I don't care. So reversibility uh, corresponds to the, to many different domains of you know interaction of exchange, where he states that reversibility of the gift, for instance, the reversibility of the gift in the counter gift, the reversibility of exchange in the sacrifice, the reversibility of time in the cycle, the reversibility of production and destruction, the reversibility of life and death, and the reversibility of every term and value of the long in the anagram. So the anagram we're thinking of Sosuo here, and he gets more into that later. Uh, but this is interesting because, in, for for instance, he says, you know, the reversibility of life and death, but we must also think of it the other way, the reversibility of death in life. Reversibility of death, what does that mean? Well, when we think about sacrifice, which is what he'll do later on in this text, uh, death is not a finalized thing that doesn't have any effect on the living, if you will. So it's there's really... Reversibility is always already there. Now, like reading mouse against mouse, sewer against a sewer, you name it, we must, in a sense, read Baudrillard against Baudrillard, in a sense. We must absolutely read Baudrillard against Baudrillard in that it seems ironic for him to be kind of laying out these totalizing, this totalizing uh, component of any given society, being that of reversibility. Because it, you know, kind of suggests there to be this kind of telos, this kind of um, genesis, if you will, this, this originary point that, you know, he charges against Freud, for instance, in invoking in the idea of the unconscious. So for that reason, we have to be a little bit suspicious of this idea. But, you know, here it is. We, we have to work with it. So he says that of the situation today, what we find ourselves in is an indeterminate one. So every reality is absorbed absorbed by the hyper-reality of the code and simulation. So this is, this is difficult to s swallow for myself because I think of hyper-reality, I think of simulation as things that, are, that actually solidify, that make truth real, if you will, that make truth apparent, that make these things come into fruition in their oppressive manifestations. So to suggest that there's some kind of like indeterminacy attached to it is an interesting one. And I think in a sense, you know, thinking about Deleuze and Guattari here is interesting. Uh, given the, uh, if we look at the works cited or whatever, it's clear that Baudrillard had at least some knowledge of anti-Oedipus. I don't know how much of it he read. Probably the whole thing. Like, I don't see why not. Uh, but in relation to this, we might think of the, you know, the regrettable, as far as the term goes, uh, schizo analysis or schizophrenic in, in capitalism, where there, in a sense there is that indeterminacy, the kind of fleeting, uh, you know, étoile filante, just going out through space and not having necessarily, well, I guess a shooting star would have a, a direction, trajectory, but just those kind of beings that exist within a, a system that is just totally irresponsible, one that flies in any possible direction, swallows up any any point, no matter where it is, or any sort of setting, any sort of people, any culture, whatever. Uh, so in that sense, we might be able to think about re, um, simulation in the code in that way. And it's indeterminate in that sense. So effectively, then, we have traversed from the second order simu simulation, which we haven't defined yet, which is, you know, 
It's like, come on, Baudrillard, you know, don't throw these terms out there without, before defining them, but he will do that later on in this text. Uh, he says that we've, we've moved from second-order simulation to that of the third order. So in other words, the hyperreal. So in, in, what he says of this is that it is only here that theories and practices, themselves floating and indeterminate, can reach the real and beat it to death. Which is interesting, because by saying this, you know, he's locating in the second-order simulation a, a, the idea of the real. This is where reality existed. So for him, reality belonging to second-order simulation, uh, we can find things like dialectics, use value, the transparency and finality of production, the liberation of the unconscious, of repressed meaning, the signifier or the signified name desire, and so on. So how these, these things fit into reality is that they attach a certain significance to, let's say in the case of use value, to a world that has, you know, that can satisfy the very specific needs of the human, and these needs have been laid out, they have been, you know, agreed upon, kind of emphasizing this idea that there is, you know, this thing called the human in all its um, material form, and it's in its very in its very being, this unchanging universal type human. Same thing can be said of the unconscious, an idea that reports there to be this kind of universal thing that, you know, exists in all of us, that in some way affects us, which may be true. But for Baudrillard, that if it was true, we've now moved beyond it. We're now in the, the phase of, you know, total signification, right? Floating signifiers that don't correspond to these, you know, real things in the world, but only correspond to one another, right? Signs, invoking signs and what and whatnot. An idea that, you know, it can, a proper Foucauldian would probably just say, yeah, Foucault already did that, like in the order of things. Uh, you know, this project is already done. But, you know, thinking about simulation is, is really important, and it's one that gives Baudrillard his, his kind of niche. So thinking about this system, Baudrillard asks, is there a way to challenge it? Now, in saying this, he's making some, he's operating on a few axioms. For instance, that, that there is something oppressive about it and that there is something worth challenging about it. What exactly, or he's assuming that it is something that actually exists, first and foremost. But with that, he, he asks, like, is there a theory or a practice which is subversive pr precisely because it is more aleatory? So aleatory being random, German, I think. Then the system itself, an indeterminate subversion, which would be to the order of the code, what the revolution was to the order of political economy. So this is where it gets for me. You know, it's tricky to evaluate because I, I keep wanting to think about the system as being, you know, one that grounds things, one, it, one that solidifies things in their image and reduces their capacity for change, right? Which is, you know, we this can be seen in Deleuze and Guattari in A Thousand Plateaus. To what extent are there, you know, barriers place that stop this, you know, endless flow of becoming or the intensities or, or you know, the possibility for deterritorialization or whatever that might look like. But here, Baudrillard maintains that there is something indeterminate about it. And he proposes then that it could be that perhaps death and death alone, the reversibility of death, belongs to a higher order than the code. 
So in that, in that way, only symbolic disorder can bring about an interruption in the code, which is odd because it would seem like, in a sense, as he criticized Marx for doing, just mirroring production by evoking this idea of disorder to challenge the indeterminacy, which I might vulgarly equate with a certain disorder, it seems as though he's just employing the same strategic impulse of the system against itself. And I think the system is much more cunning. If the system exists in such a capacity, and actually, if we accept Belgerard's thesis about the indeterminacy of the system, I'd be inclined to believe that the system itself would be effective at subsuming, kind of encapsulating, producing, you know, a sort of counterinsurgency, absorbing this symbolic disorder, rendering it productive, making it work for the system as well. Which, you know, we have to we have to take Baudrillard to task on, like, to what extent does his theory actually propose an alternative, or does it just mirror it, right? Does it just, is reversibility just the mirror of the code? There, that's, that's a good article title. Someone, no, don't, no one steal that. I'll, I'll write it first. So the only the thing that I think he he then comes to propose is that the only strategy is catastrophic, and not dialectical. Things must be pushed to the limit. Where quite naturally, they collapse and are inverted. So, in in other words, a fatal strategy. So think of his eighty three book, fatal strategies. Things must be. Uh, pressed to their their logical conclusion it is only then you know at the tipping point that things fall but this is a this is a reality housed in every single system and certainly one that is going to happen in proper Baudrillardian fashion to um, you know this third order simulation where he says that every system that approaches perfect operativity simultaneously approaches its downfall However, if we consider simulation in his terms being indeterminate, perhaps it won't approach that operativity. But that, you know, it's, just, it's there's so many aporias, it's, it's so difficult to navigate. Because in that sense, it's almost like the system has found a way out, out of uh, harm's way, right? It has managed to fix its trajectory away from colliding into the sun. And with this passage, I think that there, you know, people have so many conversations with people that, you know, think of Baudrillard as being some kind of accelerationist. And it is, you know, there are parts where it can be seen that he's a sympathizer for accelerationism. But I think that the distinction to be made is that he doesn't want so much to see the system speed up as he wants to see thought sped up to match the system, right? And if that ever did happen, I think he would say that logically, then the system would collapse. It, it would reach its point of um, its downfall. So an, an analogy or um, I guess an illusion, a way to think about this would be like seeing a car racing off a cliff. Now, let's say you had some kind of ro remote access to the accelerator, you could speed up the cars going off the cliff, it would end the process sooner, or you could find a way to speed yourself up to get in the car to stop it, which would be kind of in the Virilio, you know, Paul Virilio type camp where there's this possibility of slowing the system down, right? Of kind of, okay, 
we have to take a step back and think about this where for Baudrillard it's you know it's not quite as easy as that for Baudrillard it would be speeding up to get in the car so as to go off the cliff with the car you know to see mutual destruction which is another you know another reason or reason why people read in Baudrillard a certain cynicism or pessimism which I ironically I guess given what I've just read here don't see at all I think Baudrillard is a a rather happy thinker he's an optimistic thinker in his Machianism which is an idea you know will come into later it's not when he fully develops it's kind of in his interviews and stuff it's more apparent but the kind of battle between good and evil if you will or Baudrillard I can't remember where but he says that you know how depressing is it to think the world is a beautiful place with bad things happening in it all the time where he's like where he says that i prefer to think of the world as a terrible place with moments of you know grace with moments of where good things happen kind of you know taking things out of out of whack and trying to think about you know good as being a very small occurrence and as good good as losing out to evil we know whatever that is so this any system that approaches its downfall it, it does so precisely because of the law of reversibility where because of reversibility always being there somehow um never lets anything go on ad infinitum or whatever go go on without consequence where every system will inevitably fold back onto itself, crushing itself. So this moves us into the first chapter out of the preface, where he wants to begin to think about things in relation to uh, structures, so linguistic structures. So for him, in the third order simulation, you know, as, as I stated, kind of moving away from reality, from second order simulation, uh, now things are, value is measured, right, not by their relationship to a real referent thing in the world or whatever you know and this is all repetitive from his last books but i'll reiterate anyways now things develop their meaning precisely by their relationship to other or signs retain their meaning by their relationship to other signs right so bodhiyarty an idea of signification right thing only corresponds to the other thing flying in space it doesn't have any connection to the you know, table or wall or coffee mug or whatever. These things just exist because of the value associated with them in the simulation sphere. So of this, he asks, are we still within a capitalist mode? To which he responds, absolutely not. If anything, you know, we have to think of this at least in terms of a hyper-capitalist mode of a very different order. So what he says of this very oddly is that perhaps we we are really within a socialist mode. Perhaps this metamorphosis of capital under the sign of the structural law of value. So the structural law of value is a term that operates within the third order simulation. So third order simulation, structural law of value, code, all of these things work together. In a sense, you know, they, the terms are somewhat interchangeable. So he says, Perhaps this metamorphosis of capital under the sign of the structural law of value is merely its socialist outcome. Oh dear, then ellipsis. 
uh, you know, and because of this um, transference of authority from, you know, things in themselves or whatever to the realm of signs, perhaps, you know, Baudrillard asks that could be a socialist type. The only possible socialist outcome precisely because it's alleviating the pressure on the earth or things, you know, to the realm of the, the, the Im- imaginary, it's a regrettable term, but to the realm of, of signification. So an analysis of capital is, is like a trompe l'oeil for Baudrillard because there is something else that operates underneath of it. The rampant imperialism in, you know, present in Marxist analysis that he kind of uh, outlines in the mirror of production is a logic that is precedes capital. So the ills of capitalism are not, you know, or capitalism itself is, does not cause like giant societal ills on its own. Well, it, it does, but it's not like everything will be fixed with, you know, by fixing capital. Baudrillard wants to get at the logic that is that pervades underneath it. So, and this is, we tend to grasp on to certain ideas that don't get at a broader cultural logic that, that focus on more institutional type analyses, which is fine. Like, there's, there's nothing wrong in doing that. It's, it's a very necessary project, but it's one here that Baudrillard's not interested in. He wants to think about what is happening underneath you know, what is going on. And then, you know, a contemporary example that I like to think of is, you know, our current fascination with Black Mirror as, as being just one example. You know, people watch Black Mirror and they're like, oh shit, this is so messed up. You know, our relationship, cell phones or the internet or whatever, television screens. And that for them makes them think that this sort of oppression is some some kind of contemporaneous thing, when the these same uh, I guess hegemonic forms of communication or whatever whatever the particular episode happened to be about extended much before then. So in a sense, it detracts from you know the historical analysis about thinking about these things as being historical, rather than caught up in the present moment. Which I think many people happen to do with Baudrillard too. They, you know, they think about simulation as being a contemporary phenomenon, when in fact, you know, we think of the the orders of simulation. It actually has a history, and it goes back much further. So it makes it difficult, in a sense, to reconcile a sort of theory, right? Because if you're dealing with a, it, it ironically becomes a meta theory, if you will. Like, how do you how do you approach that? And that's one of, one of the problems with. Baudrillard is it makes it really difficult to employ him in that way because it doesn't lend itself to uh, like a cultural analysis very easily unless of course you you know as many people do locate simulation within the contemporary and romanticize the idea of there being some kind of pre-simulated era and that we can have this kind of return to that whatever that might look like which would be in my mind totally wrong but you know, a smarter person could make, I'm sure could make the argument for that. So it is in the sense that he says that just as other generations were able to dream of pre-capitalist society, we have begun to dream of political economy as a lost object. Now, even in, even its discourse carries some referential force only because it is a lost object, which is something that, you know, 
Marxists don't like hearing the possibility that, uh, you know, political economy has come to an end. And there are, you know, and this isn't Baudrillard by any stretch of the imagination. People much wiser than him uh, were thinking about this much before this. But with the development of the middle class, you know, um, and so many people working in middle management positions, it seems as though our relationship to production, you know, this, the thing that was screwing people over, alienating people, has radically shifted. And I get suspicious when people just say, I can take the Marxist analysis that was relevant a few hundred years ago, slap it today, you know, where people are just as alienated or whatever, and that's it. Done. You know, and I think of Foucault in the order of things when he writes... Marxism in the 18th century is like a fish in the water. It can't breathe anywhere else. Which is a very, you know, precise um, kind of <laughs> reduction of Marxism. I'll, I will say that. But it does say something very interesting. And I don't think that, like, despite Baudrillard's challenge to Marx, I think that he has more of a problem with people just applying Marx willy-nilly, you know, and saying that this can go anywhere. It can be something that applies to any any given historical epoch, any, any, any kind of societal paradigm, and that's it. You know, wipe our hands of it, move on. But for Baudrillard, that very idea corresponds to a cultural logic of imperialism that actually extends much before capitalism. Like, it's absurd to think that imperialism or colonization was just a you know a product of capitalism rather these things were part of a you know greater culture of authority you know in the, in the cultural systems the symbolic systems at play so this moment corresponds to a phase now this phase for Baudrillard is where the process of capital itself ceases to be a process of production and that you know, thinking about what I said, thinking about the middle class, thinking about whatever, thinking about, you know, the loss of the dropping of the gold standard or whatever, or just the stock market generally, where the most capital is produced is on a computer screen, like with no reference to things in the world. You know, we think of Bitcoin or, or cyber currencies or crypto, whatever they're called, the online currencies um, that don't have some kind of tangible connection to the production of something, but rather just by its signification as value that is, seems so arbitrarily assigned. Now, with this being said, you know, I gave the example of gold. Gold is just as arbitrary, right? It, 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 would, it would be absurd to simply say that, yeah, gold had real, real value. Like, what does that mean, real value? Why, did, why not socks? Why don't socks have that kind of value? Well, there's more of it, but then there, there are other things that... Rarity and value are not correlative. I don't see their connection, but we attribute value to it anyway. So it would be incorrect to just apply that sort of Baudrillardian method, thinking about unreality, thinking about simulation, in the service of trying to redeem a sort of pre-simulated era. However, I digress, and he continues... 
So where the process of capital itself ceases to be a production is simultaneously the phase of the disappearance of the factory. And this is because in, you know, his, in Foucauldian fashion, society as a whole takes on the appearance of a factory. So I'm, you know, it's unclear whether or not, right, it, it's unclear if Baudrillard had read uh, Foucault's Discipline and Punish. It had come out the year before this was written. So he, he makes no reference of it in this text. But, you know, th there are overlaps here. And I guess the same method can be found in Madness and Civilization or whatever. Or whatever. So of this, Baudrillard continues, he states that the factory must disappear as such, and labor must lose its specificity in order that capital can ensure the extensive metamorphosis of its form throughout society as a whole. We must therefore formally recognize the disappearance of the determinate sites of labor, a determinate subject of labor, a determinate time of social labor. We must formally recognize the disappearance of the factory, labor, and the proletariat if we want to analyze capital's current and real dominance. Just because these things stand in for, you know, what we consider to be production, what we consider to be the subject of Marxist analysis, does not mean that we're actually getting at the core of the problem. And just thinking about that term he used just a few moments ago, hypercapitalist, right? Are the same kind of methods or the same strategies employed by traditional Marxism still valid? Do they still work? Or, you know, does the factory, are, is the factory just a strategy to convince us that it's over there? Like, we can point to it and say, yeah, that is where labor is occurring if we challenge the logic of the factory, we can then get at the logic of uh, production, of alienated labor, or whatever. When, you know, for Baudrillard, he's trying to think about this thing as being extending much further than the domain of the factory, where it's like every moment. And this is for him just because capital happened to tap into a certain cultural logic of domination that it cashed out on, cashed in on, cashed out on, anyways that permeates throughout the current logical system that is part of this idea of the code, part of this the kind of imperialism indicative of the structural law of value, of this, you know, hardcore truth of science, if you will, of, you know, scientific observation, of reality in itself, and that, you know, capital, the factory, all these things are just symptoms of it. So this is where, in a sense, Baudrillard thinks that Marxist analysis falls short, and why we need to think of these things as, you know, broader. So this extends much further then than the, than the factory. So all these things, factories, asylums, prisons, schools, still exist, and will no doubt continue to exist for an indefinite period as warning signs to divert the reality of the domination of capital into an imaginary materiality, into imaginary spaces, the imaginary lo localization of oppression in these specific spaces is a mistake so he continues there have always been churches to hide the death of god or to hide the fact that god was everywhere which amounts to the same thing which is like blows my mind uh i love that part but by saying that you know equating the dis total dissemination of god kind of by stretching god to its limit like we can also see its death through that form Right. If it's everywhere, then it's nowhere. If it's everywhere, you you don't have the ability to grasp. You know, it's outside. It's uh, constitutive. 
by uh, um, it's it's constitutive element of the binary that that gives it its existence, if you will, or gives it its I guess essence. So the church, having done this, the church didn't know what it was doing. It didn't know if it was covering up God's death or you know hiding the fact that God was actually everywhere. But in either case, it served the same function, and it didn't allow, you know, critical analyses of the church. And this is still going on. Like, people are, you know, atheism, which is just the mirror of theism, which is just as, you know, religious, sees, you know, the church, sees, you know, global religions or whatever as being the problem, as being, like, the things that, oh, if we fix, that'll get rid of religion as a thing in itself without seeing that within their very approaches is a dogma that is so rampant, that is so oppressive, whether it be in, under the, the ages of a certain scientific type validity. And they failed, m- many people fail to see this. And this is where this this YouTube account will, will suddenly drop in views. But I think of like Sam Harris or the the other type atheistic people that don't see the cultural logic that pervades underneath their own own religious beliefs that they don't call religion because we've relegated religion to, you know, religion in the global sense, like Christianity or any, any, other, any other form, which makes it easier for us to digest, therefore easier for us to criticize, but it fails at actually getting at what's going on underneath and hence allows these people to mirror that same sort of religious oppression. So it might be then that religion, schools, factories, asylums are a strategy by the system itself to convince us that, no, that sort of oppression, whichever one you're evaluating, like whether it be production in the form of the, uh, the factory or, you know, religion in the form of the atheists or the in the form of churches or whatever these serve a certain purpose because they they stop us from seeing the totalizing schema at work the one that precedes these systems the one that precedes these the materiality or the imaginary materiality as he said before in the form of like the factory specifically and it's just a large trompe l'oeil. It's a red herring. Like, it throws us off. It throws us off the, the scent of what is really going on. It's very clever. The system is very clever in that way. It does very effectively find and quickly destabilize the points of its possible, you know, downfall. And this is precisely because counter supposed counter-discourses today, and I happen, you know, thinking about it in terms of the alt-right or whatever, the, the people who see themselves as being anti-system or counter-system or whatever as much participate in that same logic that they feel like they're trying to overthrow as the, the system itself that's why we can't get at the very that's why things you know don't change right you know and relying on a certain political power or whatever to undo these systemic problems is very problematic because it says like yeah solutions exist at this singular point just as all the problems exist in all these kind of single singular points these very easily definable points when it's so much more complicated and we need to try to think how do we get 
beyond, you know, and I don't, I want to be more Hegelian about this. I don't want to say like people are just stupid. They don't know what, what they're actually thinking about. But I think it's important that we have to, you know, we have a discussion about what else is going on underneath that we don't necessarily see. And that perhaps doesn't lend itself to like the language so easily. And of course, that's kind of a defeatist attitude, but I'm prepared to move into that terrain. I'm not saying like it's hopeless, but to try and think about Baudrillard's ideas here as being having having a praxis to it. Can, you know, we can locate something of a pragmatics to it. So effectively, then Baudrillard thinks about, you know, the other counter discourses that or challenges to the system. So one of the things he thinks about is the strike for strike's sake example, like having strikes just to exert the authority of strikes. Now, what he says about this in, um, in he's in a rather long passage. He says that strike for strike's sake is the true condition of the contemporary struggle, unmotivated, with neither objective nor political referent. It is the oppositional response adopted against a production which is also unmotivated, with neither a referent nor a social use value nor any other finality than its own. Production for production's sake, in short. A system which has become only a system of reproduction, revolving around itself in a giant tautology of the labor process. So if we think of labor itself, we think of capital itself as being that thing that just, you know, feeds its own purpose. Think about Das Kapital, you know, producing a certain amount of profit that is then funneled back into the system. So that system can grow to infinity. The idea of having strike for strike's sake isn't as much of a challenge to it as something that adopts its own its own method. So this is where, you know, and I've, you know, I have my own beef with Baudrillard in this way, but he thinks about strikes or union action as being, you know, part and parcel of the system. And, and this is not him either. You know, many other people have thought about this, but that, you know, unions actually affirm a certain capitalist um, potential precisely because it's not like radical enough. But for Baudrillard, the idea of demanding, for instance, higher wages, you know, in itself, good for the people that are involved in it, doesn't pose a challenge to capitalism itself, but actually reinforces the value of capital by saying, like, no, we want more of it, right? Which I, d I don't think he's clear about. He, he is as clear as he could be about how, like, for people, for many people, this is totally necessary, right? People who are living in poverty <laughs> having having living wages seems uh is is certainly important like there's no denying that but if we think about his ideas here as being in the service of crafting a, a radical challenge then we have to be critical of those approaches not to say that they're useless but if we it'd be wrong to equate them with uh you know a systemic overhaul so this idea, strike for strike's sake or production for production's sake, marks a transition from production to reproduction. Which, like thinking about Marx, like th this was already there. It would be odd to say that, you know, this is, Baudrillard did something radically different here. You know, I think he did because I'm a, um, I, I happen to like him. But, you know, whatever. He says that this this kind of shift from production to reproduction occurred in uh, May 68. So he says that they struck the universities first and the faculty of the human sciences first of all because that was where it was it became most evident even without a clear political consciousness. 
that we were no longer productive, only reproductive, and the lecturers, science, and culture were themselves only realized in the general reproduction of the, reproduction of the system. Now, with that being said, um, Baudrillard was, you know, he took place in the May 68 stuff, like he was at Nanterre, I believe, uh, and he was, you know, certainly a part of it. He was friends with Guattari. Yeah, he and Guattari actually ran a journal together, or a publication, uh, you know, dealing with radical, like, Marxist-type stuff, but they kind of had a falling out, I guess, with it, <laughs> you know, thinking about, I think that Deleuze and Guattari kind of uh, saw themselves as being much greater than Baudrillard, probably rightly so, uh, but all this to say that, you know, Baudrillard wasn't like an apathetic douche sitting on his, like, pedestal, not wanting to, you know, engage in the the basic activities of striking or whatever. But he's being critical of it, which I think is important. So he continues. He says, all this was experienced as total futility, irresponsibility. What are sociologists for? As a relegation and provoke the student movement of 68, rather than the absence of prospects, since there are always plenty of prospects in reproduction, it was rather the places, the spaces, where something actually happens that had ceased to exist. Now this is, this is ironic given what he says later about graffiti, or what he actually already said in For a Critique, where he sees like the possibility of graffiti as being, you know, a radical challenge to the system. So for him to kind of condemn uh, the May 68 stuff seems ironic, but, you know, let's humor him and, and see what, what he wants to do with it. So the idea about challenging production here, at least how it occurred in 68, was rather not a challenge to production, but a misguided challenge to reproduction. So he says that productive manual laborers, more than anybody else, thrive on the illusion of production just as they experience their leisure under the illusion of freedom, where we were still caught up in the simulation of production, which, as we should know, by challenging it that instead of, you know, what was the greater cultural logic of the time or whatever we might consider that being that of the code or the scientific type, you know, total authority, the truth, attachment of a certain value to things or reality or truth uh, is what is really oppressive here. So by just evaluating the simulation of production as it manifests on the manifests itself, remember, in the imaginary materiality of, like, the factory, we are missing the mark. So we enter now into a new divine left. So for him, the divine left, where everything has become political and ideological by the same endless drift of the operation of integration. So the news flash is political. Sport is political, not to mention art. Reason is everywhere on the side of the class struggle. The entire latent discourse of capital has become manifest. We notice a widespread jubilation secure in the assumption of this truth. Which, you know, for Baudrillard, of course, is just another tromploi. It's just a strategy by the system to distract us from what is going on underneath. So what Baudrillard proposes in his obscure, abstract fashion, he says that the only way to, to defy the system with a gift to which it cannot respond, save by its own collapse and death. 
so the system itself must commit suicide in response to the multiplied challenge of death and suicide. So hostage and terrorist must therefore, thereafter become confused with this, with this, in the same sacrificial act. So this, to me, right off the bat, seems like an erasure of real suffering, right? Kind of romanticizing this idea of death, sacrifice, whatever, uh, as a challenge, which is very much, is very white. So this is an idea that he, that he really, you know, develops on in his theorizing about war and the Gulf War and whatever later that we'll get to. But by placing death back into the equation, and this in, you know, his Baudrillardian fashion hasn't actually, at this point in the text, laid out what he means by death, but death is being that thing that challenges the system precisely because in the logic of the countergift, must be challenged, must be returned with either an equal or superior gift. So if you give the gift of death, whatever that might look like, in this case it happens to be sacrifice, sacrifice as as the gift. Um, what must be returned to it is an even greater death. Now what form can that necessarily take is a little bit difficult to outline because there have been many people who have put themselves to death uh, in opposition to the system that has done nothing. So what form, how should this death necessarily look in the case of Baudrillard? And it's a, you know, that's a question to an answer that I, I am reluctant to give, you know, try to illustrate because of how problematic or destructive it can be, because it disavows the perpetual death that is, that occurs under this system currently. Right. If we take the system as being, we don't actually don't even have to take it as like a global phenomenon. We could just think about it in the case of like the United States like in the seventies, black people being incarcerated in insane amounts, um, you know, other people of color suffering at the hands of you know white authority, and this perhaps reveals a, a racism in Baudrillard, a failure to recognize that death as being valuable death precisely because if death is what can challenge the system then the death of those people it's just subpar like it doesn't doesn't fit into the equation but he maintains and he holds on to this idea where if we want to oppose labor it's not through free time or non-labor but it is through sacrifice and i don't know i almost want to hold the suspense like i don't want to exactly lay out what he what death is doing but death is something that has been sequestered today to put it as simply as i can death is something that has been exercised of its radical potential you know the role it played in sacrifice for instance in certain cultures and certain civilizations the role that you know sacrifice played in nourishing the people with sunlight as just one example that sort of potentiation of what we consider today to be you know the end point death right for Baudrillard if we can somehow harness that logic or harness that energy we can then push into the system a certain a rupture right we can force it, it it'll catalyze the system's downfall you know whatever that might look like and if it's even worth it who knows but he, Baudrillard seems to think that it is that 
reinsertion of what has been kind of closed off that or conjured away that will open up this this new space whatever it might look like so if we can locate in the current logical system or this current system's logic uh, a power or there being power it, power does not correspond to um, putting one to death but for Baudrillard it's actually the opposite power is the ability to give life and to maintain life because in that way death loses its potential as as it you know once maintained in the sacrifice that's why you know the slave is refused death they are condemned to to life so biopolitics right you know the maintenance of life and how is that oppressive how is our attachment to life in itself oppressive and our fear of death or is death being an endpoint or if we think back to this idea of reversibility under the framework of symbolic exchange or the symbolic still very problematically uh, the idea is that death does not mark the end of life death actually feeds back into the system or whatever if the community in the form of you know nourishing the earth with sunlight making the crops grow whatever having that sort of potential and you know it, this is an idea brought up by certain eco scholars thinking about how you know the death of something nourishes the earth right where you're brought back into the cycle of life of being or whatever which is an idea that we don't hold much uh, value to because death as soon as you can't speak you can't you can't engage you're, you're just you're lifeless then you are no longer part of the system hence you know the great degree of grief that we experience not to say that it's wrong to be sad with death like that i don't want that to be what i'm trying to say here but that um our relationship to death has changed at least according to baudrillard so it is here that we move into chapter two and this is where we get into the orders of simulacra something you probably should have started the book with but i'm i'm no expert uh, but for now, I'll, this would be a good time to stop here. And I don't know. I wonder how many parts this is going to take. <laughs> this might be three or four parts. But I hope what we've gone over, gone over so far has been interesting to anyone that has uh, listened to it. And I'm going to continue on with this and have the second episode up at some point going into, you know, Baudrillard's first theorizations really or laying out of simulation, you know, the thing that people read the most, or read Baudrillard for the most. But for anyone who stuck it out this far, thank you for listening. Really, if there's anything that you you have a problem with, you know, leave it in the comments. I really, there have only been a few people that have commented and whatnot, but I'd, I'd really love to hear from you. I'd really love to know what you think about this. But for now, take care.